Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When it comes to genres of music, most of them come and go. They're hyped, they reach some kind of peak, and then just kind of fade away. Just look at the graveyard of hyped music since the beginning of the 21st century. Anybody remember Glitch? That scene started around 2000 and featured weird electronic manipulations of bloops and bleeps. It existed alongside Electroclash, which was a half-hearted resurrection of music from the synth end of the New Wave era. Then we had Grime and Freak Folk and Crunk, Dubstep, New Balearic, Bloghouse, Glo-Fi, Dance Punk, Hipster Metal, and a bunch of others. You get the idea. All of these genres and scenes had their moments and then faded into the background or were killed altogether. There are, however, certain styles that seem immortal. The blues will never die. Hip-hop isn't going away. Neither is metal or punk or pop. They will all evolve and mutate with the times, but the kernel at the heart of their operating system will remain pure. Which brings me to another genre that will not die. Ska was born in Jamaica in the 1950s. It was declared over at least twice. The first wave petered out in the late 1960s as reggae took hold. Then, in the early 80s, post-punk ska was suddenly deemed passé, But on both occasions, Ska rose from the dead and came back even stronger. Ska is now into its third wave, and that's where we're going. This is a not-so-brief history of Ska, part two. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The Specials, one of the greatest of all the second-wave ska acts with Concrete Jungle from 1979. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a program that traces the history of ska. On part one, we looked at the first and second waves. The first was everything that happened in Jamaica up until the end of the 1960s. At that point, reggae took over and ska faded into the background. Then there was the second wave, the post-punk ska revival, which a lot of people call the two-tone era because of the influence of all those acts, like the specials, on the two-tone label out of the UK. It lasted from about 1979 through to the beginning of 1983, and then, burned out by hype and stung by the unwelcome intrusion of racist elements in the UK, ska once again fell from favor. Well, with mainstream audiences anyway. Ska survived to skank another day because it ping-ponged back across the Atlantic, where it took root in New York, Boston, Chicago, and California. 
Now, we need to start in New York City. That's where we find the most important American ska band of the 80s. They were very faithful to the two-tone sound. Founder Rob Hingley was a Brit who moved to New York only to find out that almost no one knew about the British ska scene. So he decided that the only way to fix that was to form a band based on the two-tone traditions. In fact, their biggest track is probably this one. It's called Two-Tone Army. These are the Toasters. From New York, the Toasters and Two-Tone Army. Out of all the ska bands of the early and middle 80s, no American group did more to popularize this sound in the U.S. than the Toasters. And it wasn't just through touring and making records. Founder Rob Hingley also established Moon Ska Records, which eventually became the largest and the most important independent ska label in America. And soon dozens of bands were spreading the word across the continent. Word of what the Toasters were doing made it up the coast to Boston. Now, wherever you have lots of colleges and universities, you have lots of new music. That's because students like to drink. And to accommodate them, there are lots of bars. And many of these bars, to attract the students, booked live bands. Boston has more institutions of higher learning than any other city in the U.S. That means lots of places to drink and lots of places to see bands. That includes the Toasters and other bands on the Moon Sky label. In the late 80s and early 90s, a series of groups rose out of the Boston club scene. One of the most important was the Bostones. We touched on them in part one. They started coming together in 1983, when a bunch of guys became obsessed with a two-tone sound. Didn't matter that a couple of them played in hardcore bands like Motorhead and ACDC. In fact, that actually became a strength. The Bostones took two-tone style ska and mated it with American hardcore to create something that was eventually called ska-core. Now, at first, this didn't go over so well. It annoyed the ska purists, and the hardcore kids didn't get it. But eventually people started to figure it out. And by 1993, they had a major label record deal and a look that involved dressing in plaid. Things finally started to click. An example of ska core from 1993, the Money Money Bostones and Someday I Suppose. There were other interesting Boston bands too. Bim Scala Bim came together in 1983 and, like the Toasters, created a record label to help other ska bands be heard. And if you want to go even deeper, see if you can find anything by groups like Beat Soup and Mr. Cranky. So that's Boston and New York. There was a minor scene in Washington, D.C., but that became mostly hardcore territory. In the Midwest, the ska sound was propagated by groups like Detroit's Gangster Fun. They were formed in 1986 for the same reasons as the Toasters. Since no one knew about ska, they decided to spread the word themselves. Their first attempt was a 1989 album that was released only in Britain. Love the title, too. Come See, Come Ska. I have been modeled in front of my From Detroit, Gangster Fun, one of the great ska party bands of the Midwest. If you're interested in following up on this part of our history, then there are also bands like Mustard Plug and Scapone. Finally, we make it out to California, and here we have two bands who made West Coast third-wave ska happen. 
We'll start with the Untouchables. They were formed in 1981 in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles, and at first they were all about being mods. There was a period of time when a mod revival took hold in L.A., and this would be between 1981 and about 83. In the middle of it all, the Untouchables released this single. It's called Twist and Shake. There's a certain sound that I can't explain. Every time I hear that sound, it's driving me insane. I want to dance, but I don't know what to do. Say, boy, can I copy you? Won't you tell him what to do? From 1982, some early, early, early third wave West Coast ska from the Untouchables. The other important band, as far as California is concerned, is Fishbone. They were formed in 1979, and over the years, they created a sound that was a mashup of punk, funk, soul, metal, and ska. And like some of the two-tone bands, Fishbone loaded their songs with social commentary on things like racism and oppression and even nuclear war. RDA Ground Zero, every movie starring you, and the world will turn to blowing pink papers too. Fishbone and their Scott classic from 1985 called Party at Ground Zero. Once Fishbone took off, even more bands began to fall in line. So we've laid the foundations for what was to come in the 90s, and we'll pick it up there next. This is the second half of an examination of the history of ska. Although the ska sound was slowly spreading throughout North America, its headquarters, or at least the most popular bands, tended to be from California. A big part of that had to do with another revival that was happening at the same time, punk rock. Some people realized that punk and ska had a lot in common and that they blended easily. Of course, The Clash had discovered this years earlier, but they were gone, so it was up to bands like Operation Ivy to move things forward. They were formed in 1987, and like the Muddy Muddy Bostons, they were into that blend of ska and hardcore known as ska-core. They held it together for a couple of years and a couple of releases before they disintegrated and then coalesced into a new band. This time, things would stick, and Rancid, the band that followed Operation Ivy, became the first of the new wave of ska-core bands to break out big time. With the California punk revival of the early 1990s, a lot of bands decided to salt their sound heavily with ska. Part of the reason for this was a radio show called The Ska Parade. This is where you could hear all the classics from the masters, as well as material by newer bands like Rancid and Skank and Pickle, Real Big Fish, Let's Go Bowling and Buck Nine and Goldfinger. Thanks to that kind of megaphone and the fact that they issued CD compilations of their favorite ska bands, ska became deeply entrenched into the new music psyche of California, especially in Orange County and to the area south of Los Angeles. One of the groups to benefit the most from this kind of exposure was Sublime. They first came together in 1988 and by 92 had their own label, which they called Skunk Records. Sublime became wildly popular because they would play just about anywhere. They co-headlined the first ever Vans Warp Tour in 1995 and the very first Snowcore Tour. And songs like this drove crowds crazy. That's the way it had to be. 
They locked him up and threw away the keys But I can't take pity on men of his kind Even though he now takes it in the behind Scott Punk from Sublime from 1995 That's a single called Date Rape Shortly after, they also snagged a major label record deal And that first big label CD sold in the millions Unfortunately, singer Brad Noel died of a heroin overdose Just two months before it came out Let's go back to Orange County for a second. For a while, it seemed that the entire ska world revolved around what was happening there. This is where you'd find Save Ferris and the Aquabats and the Hippos and No Doubt. They were formed in 1986 as a band called Apple Corps. It was Eric Stefani and his sister Gwen. And they later joined up with some other local players, including John Spence, a guy who, when he agreed with you, simply said, No Doubt, which is where the band got their name. He was the singer and Gwen sang backup. No Doubt played as many gigs as they possibly could and had serious interests from some major record labels. But then Spence committed suicide just before a big showcase. He was just 18. The band broke up for a couple of weeks and then reformed with a new singer named Alan Mead. He didn't last very long, and when he left, Gwen took over vocals. And this is where things got interesting. Well, eventually. No Doubt got a major label record deal and released a self-titled record in 1992. It was a major flop. It sold maybe 30,000 copies. There was another album called The Beacon Street Collection featuring mostly older outtakes, and a few more people cared, but not many more. Eric Stefani bailed on the band and went to work for the company that makes The Simpsons. He was an animator. He preferred that to music. Interscope, in a last-ditch effort to salvage something from this band, paired them with producer Matthew Wilder. This next album came out on October 10, 1995, and it did okay. At last count, worldwide sales were somewhere north of 17 million copies. No Doubt from Tragic Kingdom, the album that probably did more for ska punk than any other CD. Within less than a year, ska, in all its forms, became one of the most popular of all the styles within the alternative rock revolution in North America. It seemed that everybody wanted to be in one of those bands. Of course, it couldn't last, and by the end of the 1990s, things began to quiet down again. Even bands who had built their reputation and popularity on ska, like No Doubt and Goldfinger and the Aquabats and the Money Mighty Bostones, began to downplay their ska influences. In some cases, they dropped them entirely. But that did not mean ska was dead. It's eternal, remember? After many good years in the 90s, the thirst for ska began to diminish. Bands broke up, some changed their sound, others just drifted away. Moon Ska Records, the label founded by Rob Hingley of the Toasters, went out of business in 2000, although some of its European operations survived. This, however, did not mean the end of ska. It was just time to regroup and re-energize while others continued to carry the flag no matter what. A good example is Montreal's Planet Smashers. They were formed in 1994 and, like other bands before them, created their own record label. In the case of the Smashers, their label is called Stomp Records, which has promoted dozens of ska, ska-punk, and ska-friendly bands over the years. This includes Bucko 9, Bedouin Soundclash, The Flatliners, the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble, St. Alvia, even the Toasters one of the original North American ska revival bands, they distribute some of their music through Stomp. 
Let's hear something from the Planet Smashers. This is from 1999 and is called Surfing in Tofino. Montreal's Planet Smashers with Surfin' in Tofino from their 1999 album Life of the Party. They're still going, although it got really, really rough for a time. Here's Matt Collier from the band. He's also the founder of Stomp Records, and he talks about how ska mushroomed in the middle 90s, but then it came back down with this huge crash. I mean, for me, uh, I kind of pretend like it didn't, but I know that it did. I mean, when we were starting out in 95, when our first record came out, Time Bomb, by Rancid was top of the charts it was great for us it helped us out so much that just that one little bit of interest in the form and then the Boston's helped bring it up a little higher but because we were from Canada generally the media wasn't freaking out over ska as much as they were in say you know in the states the crash the ska death or what do you want to call it, the death of ska in the states was brutal it was everything you just do not want to be ska from like 1999 to 2002 you just didn't do it we didn't tour a single uh, show in the states for three years because of it we just stayed away and we started touring again in 2003 and started picking up again in the subculture which is where it should be ska music is a you know it's a subculture form of music it has a subculture sort of style and fashion Um, it's not meant to be in the mainstream that's what I believe and when it does generally it's because someone's out to make some money and and, you know market something and uh, you know for me I think it's when it's honest and natural, which is celebrating music and celebrating life, that's where ska should be, and that's where, you know, I'd like to see it remain. So Here's one more ska band that just won't quit. Gainesville, Florida's Less Than Jake. They eventually morphed into a ska punk band, and they have their own label, too. It's called Sleep It Off Records. Try this track. It's called All My Best Friends Are Metalheads. It's from 1998. This is a fair request, and I promise I will not judge any person only as a teenager. If you will constantly remind yourself that some of my generation judges people by their race, their belief, or the color of their skin, and that this is no more right than saying all teenagers are drunken dope addicts or glue sniffers. Ska Punk Vets, Less Than Jake, with a single from 1998 called All My Best Friends Are Metalheads. Ska is just one of those styles that's so infectious, so fun to play, and so easy to dance to, that I can't imagine it ever going away. It's pretty tough to listen to ska and not feel good. It's also a fascinating genre for the music nerd because of its history. It's just so deep and so rich. That's what happens when a style of music has been around for more than 50 years. And yeah, it gets sidelined every once in a while, but simply evolves and recycles itself. In fact, it's actually good for Ska to become uncool for a while because this gives it a chance to regenerate and to be discovered by a new generation. If what you've heard intrigues you and you want more, just Google Ska music and then choose from more than 29 million sites devoted to the subject. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.